0: Okay, i tell you what, um, let's start with a word association game. Okay, um, I think we all know how a word association game works. I say a word, and you just consider for a moment what comes to mind. Okay, word association game. There's, I'm just, we're not going to draw this out. We're going to go for one word <laughs> in a word association game. So here's the word. What comes to mind when I say to you the word substitute? What comes to mind? Substitute. Uh, for some of you being so spiritual immediately you think of holy scripture don't you i say substitute immediately you go to that principle of substitution that flows through uh, holy scripture that's some of you hopefully a good number of people for others i say substitute and you're incredibly intelligent and so you think about mathematics don't you some of you do in a way and you think about that maybe that idea of you substitution that exists in calculus maybe that's where you go because you're very intelligent i'm guessing that for most of us (laughs) we're less elevated in our thinking and so when we hear the word substitute what do we think about football yes i think that's right for some we think about that idea of maybe harry kane tweaking his hamstring in the 83rd minute, having to leave the field, and he is replaced by another player. The point I'm making is that substitution can mean a lot of things, can it? Substitution can mean many different things, lots of different ideas. Ask the minister here. Uh, I'm hoping this. I'm hoping that when you hear that term, substitute, one other area comes to mind. See, is this not true that we have encountered the theme of substitution already in this sermon series? Have we not? Can you remember? If you've been here and our look at numbers. Do you remember it? Like we heard that from the Passover. Everybody knows the Passover, don't they? Everybody, and from the youngest to the eldest, everybody knows the Passover. Where God rescued us from Egypt. From the Passover onwards... We heard that the people of Israel were indebted to God. That from the Passover onwards, they owed God their firstborn. They had this debt. But hang on a second. What did we learn in the sermon series? What did God promise in Numbers chapter 3? I'm sure quite a few of you can remember this, can't you? Numbers chapter 3, God promised that he would ransom people from that debt although it's a debt to him god promised that he was going to free those people from the debt and how in numbers three did he promise he was going to do it that god was going to accept a substitute for them a substitute that god was going to accept the family line of levi or the levites and he was going to accept them in place of the people do you remember it if you were here yeah a few nodded heads maybe you're sitting there thinking i remember that andy but why are you banging on about it now? You know, you take long enough to get through a, a book of the Bible. And why we go back the way? Why are we looking at Numbers 3? That was ages ago. You get it, don't you? What have you got in your hands? In Numbers 8, what you see is the actual realization of this substitution. So in this portion of Scripture, you've got here, God is being good to His Word. Do you see it? In this, what is a really detailed, graphic, and very, very bloody ceremony that we're looking at in Numbers chapter 8. What does God do? But these Levites are actually, at this point, substituted for the people of God, and these Levites are given over to him. We see the realization of the substitution. And I'll say this, lest you're thinking right now, maybe you're visiting the church and you're thinking, wow, this is a bit old and archaic, and this is a bit odd, this ritual. Maybe you're thinking that just now. I'm going to ask you one question before we get really into the, the weeds of Numbers chapters 8. I ask you, who is the hero of Numbers chapters 8? Come on. You think about it, how it sits here in redemptive history, how it sits there in the full breadth of Scripture. Who's the hero of Numbers 8? Come on! Think about it. Who's it pointing you to? You've got a substitute for the people of God and a substitute who is going to serve the lord god and why does the substitute do it to enable the people of god to be able to worship god safely without threat of the plague without the threat of the wrath of god and the covenants come on you're with me right who's the heel of numbers eight this exists to point you to the lord jesus christ numbers eight shows you jesus so With all of that said and laid out before us, can I ask you to turn with me in your Bible to Numbers chapters 8 to make sure that you've got it in front of you. So switch on your phone, your iPad, or actually open a Bible and have Numbers 8. I'll give you the page number. It's 117. So if you weren't here last week, we looked at that first section last week from verses 1 to 4. And then we're going to try this morning, God willing, uh, to consider 5 to the end of the chapter. And the first heading, the first thing that we need to consider or notice here is the necessary purity of this substitute. Okay, so the necessary purity of the substitute. Okay, let me speak to the boys and girls just for a moment. <coughs> so you just quit your worksheet just for a second, boys and girls, if you're doing that. Maybe the, the boys and girls can remember what I said to you earlier on in this sermon series, what I said about the Levites. Now, just listen for a second. I said to you, didn't I? See if you remember this. I said that since the job of the Levites was to guard the tabernacle, and since if God found any contamination, what he would do is pour out a plague on the people. I wonder if you remember what I said. I said that the Levites, because of that, they had one of the most dangerous jobs of all time. Remember I said that? I said, more dangerous than a fireman. More dangerous than a policeman. More dangerous than those dudes who clean the windows on a skyscraper. More dangerous than that. Now, given that reality for us, it won't come as a surprise to you, friends, does it? To see the first emphasis of this section of Scripture. Do you notice what it is? The first emphasis is on the need for purity. The need, given their job, the need for these Levites to be pure. you, You picked that up, didn't you? Now, if you paid really close attention to it when Harrison was reading out this portion of scripture, you maybe saw that there was need for purity in two uh, different what we call them, two different dimensions almost. Have a look at verse seven with me. Like the the first area is cleansing. In fact, if you look at verse 7 closely, you'll maybe see that there's three steps that the Levites had to take. Do you notice that in the verse? So the first thing for this cleansing is that they have to be sprinkled with... You see it with the water of purification, which is most probably the idea that there was this bronze laver, this bronze basin in the tabernacle courtyard. So it's most likely that this big sediment we're dealing with, the water's taken and sprinkled on the Levite. So that's your first step. Read on with me. What's the next thing they've got? They've got to get their Gillette razor out or their Bic razor or whatever it is, don't they? And these Levites have to, what do they have to do? They've got to shave themselves from top to toe. So it's an idea very often in the ancient world associated with pure cleansing. And then what's, do you look to the end of the verse? What's the last step? If they've got their Bic razor out, they've got their vanish stain remover out now, don't they? Because they've got to make sure that their clothes are sparklingly clean. So everyone with me thus far? Are you? There's this threefold process of kind of ceremonial cleansing to kick off uh, this big ceremony. Okay, great. Tickety-boo. Fine. Marvelous. What's the problem with it? Come on. Threefold process. What's the what's the issue? You get it, don't you? Like the problem here is this is dealing with the external things and the external things only, isn't it? This is dealing with outward cleansing. Think about it, the body, the hair, the clothes. So what needs to happen? The moral effects of sin, the inward, the spiritual realities of sin also have to be dealt with. So look at verse 8. The sacrifice. Now, again, interesting though, isn't it, with the sacrifices, if you look at it? So it's not just one, but it's actually two bulls that have to be sacrificed. Do Do you see it? So one is a sin offering. So that's dealing with... The sort of defilement and the contamination that sin causes. And then what's the second one? Did you pick up on it? So there's a burnt offering. So the smoke and the aroma of this burnt offering comes up to heaven and appeases God. So I ask this for everyone in the room. Do we grasp the first stress and first emphasis of this section of Scripture? Do we? What's it about? You get it. For the Levites to be an acceptable substitute to God, an acceptable substitute. They need to be clean, they need to be pure, and they need to be free from sin. Now, how did you come to church today? I don't mean what method of transport did you use. I mean, how did you come in your heart to church? Like, I hope and have prayed that we All of us, whether we are professing to be a Christian or not a Christian, that all of us came into this place utterly desperate to see Christ Jesus by the work of the Holy Spirit of God. I mean, we genuinely, do we not believe that prayer that, that I pray, that Harrison prays so often before we, we turn to the pages of Scripture, where we plead with God that he would show us the Lord Jesus Christ in the preaching of his word. We believe that as Christians. Don't we? we long to see and to know more of the Lord Jesus Christ. So with that in view, maybe it is apparent to you right now how God shows us Christ Jesus in Numbers 8. How does he show us Christ? He shows us Christ not in parallel, but in contrast to these servants, these Levites. Isn't that right? What is true of you, Christian friend? What is true of your substitute and your replacement? Your substitute for sin had no need of this. (laughs) He had no need of these waters of purification. He had no need of these sacrifices. What is true of the Lord Jesus Christ? Come on pure clean yes an entirely sinless sinless son of god now we know this is true here's the problem with it very often we are really selfish with that reality aren't we in the church like we think about for a moment we think about the fact that christ is sinless what do we do we only think about ourselves what we gain from christ sinlessness we only think about the fact that ah therefore with his sinlessness he can make atonement for us you mustn't get me wrong that is both true and it's marvelous and you and i christians we should praise god right now for our spotless sacrificial lamb but i want to say this to you should we not just sometimes pause stop and think about, consider not just what we gain from the fact that Christ is sinless. But should we not just sometimes as the people of God just marvel at what that says about our Savior. His purity, His glory, He was sinless, He is sinless. And maybe we just do now. I mean, you, you, you consider this with me for a moment. That there has been a man who has walked this earth and lived like you and lived like me and yet has done that without even a hint of error or evil in his life at all. Sinless. Without sin. Now, if you're a parent in here, right? If you're a mum or you're a dad or even if you're an auntie or an uncle or a granny or a granddad and there's kiddies in your, 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 your family, you think about that for a second. Even in his infancy... I mean, even as a little toddler, as a child, Jesus Christ, our Lord, was without sin. My parents, no tantrums, you know? Like, no sort of disordering. None of that real selfishness that can be very often displayed by children. Isn't that amazing? And then you move on in his life, and then, ah, it hits you. Even as a teenager, free from sin. You think back to what you were like. Think about the teenagers that you know. Think about it if you are a teenager. Think about that with Jesus Christ. No unjust, undue rebellion against authority as a teenager. Now listen to the words I'm going to say to you. No lust as a teenager. No lies. No deceit. No dishonor. Isn't that amazing? And you move on and then you consider that even as an adult no sin from jesus none at all and we consider ourselves and we think about it we marvel no materialism in his heart you know like no impatience with the people that he loves no anger no jealousy no greed at all and what's the other side of the coin no sins of omission either we think about that Jesus always throughout his life always acting appropriately doing as he should with the people in his life He always cared for them as he ought to have cared for And then we get to that cherry on the top the one that always strikes me Throughout his ministry never ever as he considers all of the Ungrateful people that would become part of his church As he looks forward to them as he sees them even in the disciples in his face never once even a hint of bitterness towards those he's going to have to suffer for and die to save. Friends, as you consider not just our city and the immorality in our sin, but you consider here, right now, you consider what you are like, you are sin, your darkness, doesn't Jesus, doesn't his purity, his perfection, his sinlessness, doesn't that make him so desirable in your sight? Doesn't it? Friends, It is an amazing truth that our Lord had no need of waters of purification. He had no need of the razor because our Lord Jesus Christ is without sin. And what does that mean for the people of God today? It means hallelujah and praise God. We have the pure substitute we need to ransom us from the debt that we owe to God by our sin. So we see the necessary purity of the substitute. Second of all, we see here the sacrificial purpose of the substitute. Everyone got it? The sacrificial purpose of the substitute. And there's uh, a few visitors, uh, as we've mentioned, there's a few visitors in in the congregation today. Um, But I want to speak generally, and I'm guessing here, but I think it's fair enough to say that the likelihood is that most of the people in the room have either been brought up in the church or have been part of the church for a number of months, a number of years. That's a generalization. I know it's not true for everyone in the room, but most people kind of familiar with how we'll roll (laughs) in a uh, Reformed or Presbyterian church. Because of that, I think, again, I'm fairly confident in saying that most of you are familiar with some of the stuff we've already just looked at there. So you are familiar, I'm sure, with the idea of the bulls being used as a sacrifice for sin. Some of you have heard, <laughs> I don't know, hundreds of sermons on the Old Testament sacrificial s- s- you know, system. Isn't that right? Yeah, everyone? We understand that uh, animals were used in the Old Testament, in the Levitical system, and they were used to symbolically deal with the sins of the people. We get that. Most of us get it. If not, we just got it there. I just said it. Okay, so it's familiar to us. I think I need to say this, though. Where we go next, what we deal with now under this heading is actually, I think, far from familiar to us if we're part of the church. I think what we deal with next is actually quite unusual in the Old Testament, quite unusual and unfamiliar to see Scripture. So what am I talking about? I want you to hear this. Please make sure you get it. In Numbers chapter 8, listen, please. In Numbers chapter 8, the Levites are not just becoming a substitute. Wait for this. That in numbers chapters eight, the Levites are actually being offered to God as a sacrifice by the people of Israel. Did everyone hear that? Does everyone get it? The OK, I'm not saying that they are going to be killed and sacrificed in that sense. But as from this point onward, as they go about their service in the tabernacle, these Levites, these Levites are actually viewed as living sacrifices. So the people of Israel in the ceremony, and you can imagine it, hundreds of thousands of people there, and they are taking these Levites, and they are making them as an offering and a sacrifice to God. Now, if you are part of a church, and you've been in churches like this for a while, are you not with me that that's quite unusual? Like As far as the Old Testament system is concerned, we're used to animals, we're used to bulls, we're used to goats and lambs and so forth being offered. But people, people, Levites being offered to God as sacrifices. Can this, is this right? Have I got this right? How do we see that here? Can I show you? Would you follow me? Can I ask you to look at the end of verse 10? and to see the activity that God demands. Look at the end of verse 10. I'll let you get it. Make sure you get it. What's the activity? So we are told all these massive gathering of people, they are to, God says, lay their hands on the Levites. Now, I just think practically and logistically what you're dealing with probably is the idea of the elders of the people. It's not you know, hundreds of thousands of people doing this, but I think it's the the elders, the representatives, they come forward, and now this is critical, isn't it? Just as the Levites are doing with the bulls and their sin offering, so representatives of the people have to take their hands and they have to place their hands on the heads of the Levites. And the word in the Hebrews, a really quite important word, because there's real force here. So it's the idea that the people take their hands and they really, really press them upon the heads of the Levites. They really lean into the Levites and you see what's going on. They're leaning, they're pressing their hands as a way of symbolically transferring their guilt. The guilt of the people, symbolically transferring the sins of the people, where? Onto the Levites. Not an animal, not a goat, but the Levites. That's the first thing. second thing I want you to notice is the terminology in verse 19. It gets even more interesting when you hit verse 19. Look at verse 19. Again, I'll give you a second. Point your kids to it as well. Verse 19. What are the Levites? Do you see? We are told that the Levites were, look at that, they were making atonement for The people. Now the word, we probably, a lot of us in here know the word. The word is Keper in the Hebrew, and it's got all this big, wide semantic range. But fundamentally, you see what's happening. By placing their hands on the heads of these Levites, what's happening? These Levites are becoming, in that moment, a ransom for the people and a ransom before God. And do you want the clincher? You want the clincher? You do, right? How do we know that this is an offering and sacrifice? Look at the declaration from God in Verse 11. In fact, you could look at verse 11, you could look at verse 13, you could look at verse 14, you could look at verse 21. What does God say? God says that the Levites are to be given as an offering, as a wave offering, as a type of of dedication, sacrifice. Friends, isn't that amazing? We're used to animals, bulls, goats, lambs, but here we have people, here we have the Levites actually offered to God to ransom the people from their situation, from their debt they owe to Him. Now, Let's pause for a second to open this up. Now, you know as well as I do, where could we go as we're dealing with this idea of the Levites being offered by the people as a sacrifice to God? What could we do right now? We could spend a lot of time actually applying this to the life of the Christians in the room. Isn't that right? Are you, friends, are you a Christian? Like, are you resting in Christ Jesus for your eternal salvation? You repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah? Yeah. If that's you, come on, do you not see the parallel in your life? Surely you do. Like What is it that God says off you? Romans 12. What are you to God? You, like the Levites, are a living sacrifice to God. And you understand that we could spend a lot of time unpacking that, couldn't we? And I would actually urge you, if you're a Christian, to meditate upon that even later this afternoon, even tonight, even this week. Do you regard, are you looking at your life in those terms, looking at numbers eight and thinking, this is me, a living sacrifice. Is that how you're thinking about your life? If not, you know what to do. You've got to go meditate, pray through what would it look like for my life to be in everything, a living sacrifice to God. And we could unpack that. But you know we're not going to. You know where we have to go, friends. We have to consider our substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I wonder, do you really see the parallels between our Lord Jesus Christ, our substitute, and do you see the parallels between him and the Levites here? You do, don't you? Think about it. The Lord Jesus Christ, think of it. Like the Levites, the Lord Jesus Christ, though without sin, was willing to embrace the ceremonial washing of baptism, before his time of formal ministry began, just like the Levites. Isn't that something? And and in the Levites, what was the focus of their ministry? It was all about the tabernacle. And what do we see with the Lord Jesus Christ? His ministry was all about himself. The one as God, the presence of God, tabernacling amongst his people, all of himself. He was the important one. And the Levites, what did they do? Just like the Lord Jesus Christ, what did he do? He guarded that tabernacle. And he guarded at all times from impurity and defilement and contamination and sin. And we could could unpack more of that, but you know where we must go. Think about it, what we're seeing here. These Levites were an offering. They were a sacrifice, were they not? Where are you pointed to by Numbers 8? Just now, surely God, the Holy Spirit, takes you by the hand and he points you to the cross at Calvary. Are you a Christian? What has your substitute done for you? He became not just a living, but a dying sacrifice for you. You consider Calvary and what happened? You were ransomed, freed forever from that debt that you owed to God for sin. And how did it happen? What happened at Calvary? Do you see what God has done? By grace... God has taken your hands and he has placed them on the head of the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary, hasn't he? And what is that It's symbolic. No, the Lord God by grace has actually transferred your guilt, your sin and the condemnation, transferred it to his beloved son. He has died as a sacrifice for, for us. Friends, how we should marvel. We look to these Levites, and what do we see in their substitution? But in their sacrifice, you and I today are showing just a glimpse of the atoning work of Christ's cross. So we see the necessary purity of our substitute, we see the sacrificial purpose of the substitute, and then we close this morning. With the changing position of the substitute, um, with this section of scripture, we are actually we're actually concluding. We were talking about this with the elders just before we came out. With this section, we're actually concluding uh, the last of a number of sections where we, as a congregation, have been thinking about the Levites. If you've been at LCPC over the last number of weeks or months, you know that to be true. We've seen and thought about the Levites a lot. So we've talked about the responsibilities of the Levites, their role. We've talked about what they're supposed to carry, how their family line is divided. We've talked about this big census of the Levites. There's been a lot about the Levites over the last uh, number of weeks and months. And with this, we're concluding our look at the Levites. But I wonder if you noticed that there is just this little postscript at the end, do you see it from verse 23? Have a look with me from verse 23. Do you see how there's this little end part, this postscript? Uh, I've got to say to you that there's just a couple of problems that you and I encounter with this postscript, this last concluding section. Just a couple of little problems. The first one, I don't actually personally think it's that big a deal and I'm not going to spend a lot of time looking at it. I wonder if there's anyone who gets it. I wonder. You tell me afterwards, and don't lie to your minister. You tell me afterwards if you get the first problem here. Okay, what's the problem? The problem is with the age restrictions that you've got there. Do you notice what they are in verse 24? They are different to the age restrictions that we looked at in Numbers chapters 3 and 4. Okay, so in Numbers chapters 3, it said the Levites, it was from the age of 30 to 50, And then you read this and it says, actually, the Levite restrictions is 25 to 50. And I'm saying that's not that big a deal. Like there's a million different ways. I'm not going to go into them, but a million different ways that we can reconcile the text. And I like actually what the Jewish scholars say about it, because they talk about the historical evidence that there was an apprenticeship, a five-year apprenticeship that Levites were supposed to undergo. So that would That's one of the ways that we can easily reconcile that. So I'm not going to deal with that problem. It's the other issue that I want to highlight. So I could ask you to do this, please. Could you just look at the, if you're using the ESV, look at the title that the ESV gives the section of Scripture. Now, if you're not using the ESV, it may probably be the same for whatever translation you're using, because I had to look at quite a few other ones. What does it say? the retirement of the levites is that what you've got in front of you yeah for most of us retirement of the levites now maybe it is just because i got out of bed the wrong side today maybe it's just because i'm a grumpy scotsman could be that as well but that annoys me <laughs> what, do, what do you think about when you when you think about retire retirement or retiring what are you going to do when you retire <laughs> you take up knitting or lawn bowls, or retire to Florida, or something something like that. Whatever it is, what do we automatically think about when we think about retirement? We think about stopping work. We think about ceasing from a job and stopping a work, right? That, for somebody in the Western mindset, that's what happens when you retire. That's certainly what I think of. Do you see why it's annoying? That is not what happens in that section of Scripture at all. Like you see, if you look at verse 25, you see that we are told that the Levites are to withdraw from the duty of service. Now, we maybe think that means you retire. It's not. It's a very technical term. So it's actually saying that the Levites are stopping one area of their work, and it's the heavy duty stuff, you know? So when you hit 50, you were to stop. You didn't have to carry, and cart the heavy tabernacle. But if you look at, look at verse 26, you actually see it's not retirement of you at all, but actually the Levites are to continue serve. Do you see how the role kind of changes when they hit 50? It's to be a guarding of the tabernacle. They're actually to assist from that point on the younger brethren, the younger Levites. Now you know as well as I do that we could easily apply that, especially to those in here who are older in the Christian life. Those who have been a Christian for a long time and perhaps, you know, feeling slightly weary and and it might sound like bad news. But what we surely see here and throughout Scripture is there isn't a point where we can just give up on Christian service. We said it before. We'll say it again. There isn't a retirement age. And the Christian life is there. That instead you and I are to keep on keeping on. Looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. Seeking even in prayer to serve the Lord our God. And what are we supposed to do? Surely we see an e- echo of it there. That we are to change our rules as we get older. And we're to try and support the younger Christians in the church. Aren't we? And we're trying to encourage them to guard. And to guard the church from sin. And again we could camp out in that. But do you know where I'm going to close? You do, right? Close the same point we've looked at all the way through Numbers chapters 8. We, we end with our Lord and we end with our Savior. Because yes, the most important thing for you to understand is that His work at that cross is a finished work. The Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came not to serve, but to The one who came not to be served, but to serve at the cross. His heavy duty work. It is finished, that heavy duty work of atoning for sin. Well, what's the news? What what should um, warm our hearts this morning as Christians? Like the Levites, our Lord has not retired. And even now as I speak to you, our Lord is at work and at work for you that through his intercessory work and through his holy spirit what does our god do but he empowers our elder brother empowers his younger brethren and empowers us to guard against sin powers us to serve him the lord jesus christ our great servant he empowers us to make known the good news of the gospel so i, I wonder this have you come into the church not known the reality of that good news of the gospel? I mean, is that the case today? Like again, I say to you that I don't know some of you and I don't know where you stand before Almighty God. But did you come into this church not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? And has the Holy Spirit worked in your life so that just now you see something of how desirable Jesus is? You see something of the extent of his humiliation that he has willfully undergone for his people. And do you today want the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you want that salvation that he freely offers? Then maybe from this chapter you see what you need to do right now. Friends, you need to lay the hands of faith upon the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. That you need to press into him. You need to lean on the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. In short, you need to repent and believe And if you do that, then the promise of Almighty God is that there is forgiveness for your sin. There is eternal life available. There is peace with God available only in Christ. So if you have come in here unbelieving, what on earth would stop you? What on earth are you waiting for? You turn away from your sin. You repent and you look to Christ and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And and what happens right now is that you are ransomed and you are freed forever and ever. Freed from that debt by sin and freed by the one who is, I'm sure you would agree with me, the one who is undoubtedly the greatest substitute of all. Friends, let's bow our heads. Let's look to Christ in prayer. Lord God, we we want to praise you. We want to praise you for your goodness to us. Lord God, that like these people of Israel because of their sin, because of our sin, we are utterly unworthy of the work that you have done to set us free and to ransom us. We thank you for the purity of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have sent him amongst us to live in our place, in our stead, to represent us, but without sin. And we thank you for the cross. We thank you that he offered himself up as a sacrifice for our sin. We thank you that that work is finished of atoning. We thank you that Christ is risen and ascended and even now ever lives to intercede. And to empower his church. Lord, we ask that you would do that now. We pray that you would meet in this silence with those who are unbelieving. We pray that you would make them alive by the Holy Spirit of God. That you would provide people in their lives to have conversations about Christ. That they would come forward to speak to elders and other Christians with questions ultimately we are asking, would you change them? Lord God, change them by grace. And we pray this in the name and for the name's sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.